Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Matthew 12, verses 1 to 8. And our sermon passage is picking back up in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 21, verse 1 to chapter 22, verse 5. Again, 1 Samuel 21, verse 1 to 22, verse 5. That's our sermon passage. But first, we will go to our scripture reading, which again is found in Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 8. Brothers and sisters, please remember that this is the very word of God that is being read to you now. So please give your full attention to the reading of the word of God. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what, it, what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. But the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now turning, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 21, beginning at verse 1 and reading through chapter 22, verse 5. <clears throat> Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart 
and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their, hand, in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to meet him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Boab, of Moab rather. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he let the, left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, our gracious King, we thank you, dear Lord, for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us about David, but most importantly and most especially about you. We thank you, Lord, for the refuge that you provide for David, indeed for your people, for us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would remind us again that you are the God who is our refuge and our strength. We pray that your spirit would guide us we pray that he would give us understanding. We pray, O oh Lord, that through the preaching of your word, we might glorify you even more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, if you look at the last verse of chapter 20, you'll see that, that it says that David rose and he departed. He, he got up from his meeting with Jonathan, that, that tearful uh, parting with Jonathan, and he left. He departed. And as we'll see, departures are going to be a regular theme for David in our passage this morning. The repeated use of the word departed in reference to David emphasizes the fact that he is now officially on the run. He's a fugitive. He's a fugitive in his own land, in his own future kingdom. And as a fugitive, as someone who's on the run, his needs are pretty basic. At this point, he needs food, and since it's the king who is after David, he also needs a weapon. And David knows just where to find both in one place, in the tabernacle or the sanctuary at Nob. But as we will see, this is a calculated move by David. He's on the run, but going to Nob, getting the holy bread and the sword of Goliath, it's not something that was on his way, he's going to end up in Gath. He's going to flee from Nob. He's going to go to Gath. Gath is far to the west of where David was when he was still in Gibeah in his meeting with Jonathan. He had to, had to trek down to the south to get to Nob. And so we see that this is a psychological operation that David is carrying out against Saul and against the men who are trying to kill David. In a very subtle way, David is asserting his kingly prerogative by taking the holy bread, the showbread, the bread of the presence, the bread that was there in the, the holy place inside the sanctuary, the tab tabernacle, 
right by the altar. It was there that it was looked upon by the Lord as he came, uh, in a sense, to observe the sacrifice. It was meant only for the priests, but it's been given to David, this future king. And so he's asserting his prerogative by taking the bread, but also by taking one of the most significant battle trophies in all of Israel. And in doing so, he is signaling to Saul that though he might be on the run, he's not going to to lay down and die. He's not going to roll over and let Saul just kill him and take his life. However, the sad reality is that David is alone right now. His wife is back in Gibeah. He doesn't know when or, if, when or if he's going to see his best friend Jonathan again. He has no soldiers at his command right now. And it's at this point in life that he writes the words, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, from Psalm 56. Even more than the bread, even more than this great giant sword, David went to Nob to seek refuge in the Lord, the God of Israel. And it's during this time of isolation and hardship that David more fully learns the fact of God's faithfulness to his people. As we work our way through the sermon, I would ask you to keep this thought in front of you. God is our refuge, and our safety and peace is found nowhere else but in him. God is our refuge. And our safety and peace is found nowhere else but in Him. This is a three-pointer again today. The first point of the sermon is simply titled, Bread and a Blade. The second, King of the Country. And the third point, Mission to Moab. So again, the first point, Bread and a Blade. The second, King of the Country. And third, Mission to Moab. So let's look at the first point of the sermon, Bread and and a blade. David has departed Gibeah and he went south and somewhat southeast to Nob, as verse 1 tells us, to Ahimelech the priest. And when, David, when Ahimelech came out to greet David, we're told in verse 1 that he was trembling. And he asked David, Why are you alone and no one with you? He doesn't understand what David is up to here. And according to one commentator, it seems likely that much earlier, after the Philistines had captured the ark, And Eli and his sons had died. The Shiloh sanctuary that we saw at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, uh, to which Hannah took her son Samuel, that that sanctuary was destroyed. And Nob then seems to have become the city of the priests, as 1 Samuel chapter 22 verse 19 refers to it. And the tabernacle had apparently been relocated there. Now Ahimelech is identified in chapter 22 as the son of Ahitub which may mean, likely means, that he is the Ahijah of chapter 14, verse 3. Ahimelech may be the brother of Ahijah, uh, but several commentators make a convincing argument that he is, in fact, Ahijah himself, making him the great-grandson of Eli, the priest at Shiloh. Ahimelech, therefore, was the priest of the king, meaning King Saul. And and if that's the case, then why is the name change? Why, Why the name change? What... What's the significance of that? Well, Ahijah means Yahweh is my relative. God, the Lord God, is my relative. Ahijah, Ahijah. Ahimelech means my relative is king. 
Ahia, that's the, the word for relative, and then Melech is the, the Hebrew word for king. Now, we, we have to be careful about placing too much emphasis on names, but if it's the case that this name was changed, there probably is some significance, some reason uh, behind it. Now, we don't know, but it may well be that Ahimelech, Ahijah, now Ahimelech, that he changed his name in defiance to King Saul. And certainly when you read the passage in 1 Samuel 22, you see that Ahimelech, Ahimelech is not cowed by Saul. He's not afraid of Saul. He stands firm before Saul and makes strong assertions about the character, the good character of David. Well, if it's the case, and we believe that it is, that the, the sanctuary, this tabernacle that was at Shiloh was destroyed and then it was relocated uh, uh, there in Nob, uh, then this would explain why the sword of Goliath was there. And also the ephod, the ephod which held the oracle stones, the Urim and the Thummim, that the priest of the king kept with him. Now the reason that Ahimelech was trembling was probably because being the priest of the king, he would know about this deteriorating relationship between Saul and David. And he would have been nervous if that's the case as to David's intentions. Why was he coming to me? Why is he coming alone? Is he coming to assassinate the priest of the king? And David responds to Ahimelech's questions in verse 2, telling the priest that the king has sent him on a secret mission and that he is meeting his men at a specified time and place. And when David says the king has sent him, the priest hears Saul. Most of you, when you read the passage, when you heard it read, you heard Saul has sent David on a, message, uh, on a mission. But that isn't what David meant. What king... Is David referring to here? Well, it's the same king, apparently, uh, that Ahimelech is referring to in his name. My relative is king. The matter of which David speaks in verse 2, it is a reference to the matter between Jonathan and David and the Lord. Jonathan told David in chapter 20, verse 23, just a few verses before our passage, and as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. The matter there was, was the effecting of David's escape, should it be determined that, the, that Saul the king was out to kill him. What's the matter? David has discerned the Lord's will. He's got to escape. And so there's, there's a lot of, of questioning over this passage, over, over the next section in our sermon, the deception that takes place. Is David lying here? What's going on here? And, and, and there's a sense in which perhaps we, we could be an apologist for David and say oh, he's actually he's carrying out a mission. He's carrying out a mission of the king, the great high king of heaven. And we understand, I think, in, in our country, uh, we understand that there are times when there are state secrets. There are... are times when agents of the states cannot talk about the mission that they are on. They have to keep uh, that mission quiet. They have to keep it uh, on the down low. They, they can't be truthful when asked about why uh, they are carrying out, why they're doing what they're doing. Is that a lie? We all probably would agree that it's a good thing that we have agents on the ground in countries that would seek to destroy us. And there are times when those agents have to be deceptive about why they're there and who they are and what they're about. And so it may well be the case here for David. It's also, I think we could make a pretty strong case, that David actually, as it turns out, 
is telling the whole truth. When he makes reference to the men, and of course David doesn't necessarily know it at this point, he has no men, but he's going to have men. He's going to have 400 men. Of course, the, the, the bread of the presence, the showbread, it won't be enough for that many, and it probably is all eaten up by that time anyway. So whether or not David is, is lying, whether or not he's violating the ninth commandment, it's difficult to say. If he is, it's not so much that this passage is prescribing this behavior for us, that we're not being commanded uh, to engage in the same behavior as David, if it turns out, in fact, that he was violating the ninth commandment here, it is merely describing what David did. And if indeed he violated the ninth commandment, again, what does it show us about David? Well, it shows us that he's a sinful human being. What does it show us about God? If David indeed sinned here, it shows us that God is faithful to his people and to the promises that he's made to his people, even when we are unfaithful to him. Now, what he needs, he tells Ahimelech, is food. Whatever the priest has on hand. Now, one commentator makes the point here that this knob, this, this town knob, is, is perhaps a small town, but we learn later in chapter 22 when, when Saul goes there and, and his men, and, and uh, Doeg specifically commits this massacre of the priests, that there were 85 priests in this town. And these weren't Catholic priests, they would have had wives, they would have had, wives. They would have had children, they, there would have been a, a, at least a small town there. And, and, and this commentator points out it's a little strange that he goes to the tabernacle and asks for bread, and the only bread that is there is the bread of the presence, the, the, the show bread, the bread that is placed next to the altar in uh, the holy place in the tabernacle. And so Himelech tells David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. Now this holy bread to which Ahimelech refers, we've already said it's the bread of presence. It consisted of 12 loaves of bread. These were very heavy loaves of bread. This would have been very dense uh, grain uh, bread representing the 12 tribes, which was set out on a table in the holy place of the tabernacle. And it was replaced every Sabbath with fresh bread, with warm bread, we read in our passage. And the old bread ordinarily was only to be eaten by the priests, but there were exceptions for urgent situations such as the one that David was feigning. The same principle is in play when the Pharisees challenged Jesus over his disciples plucking the heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath. And Jesus references this very passage and he makes it very clear that deeds of necessity, deeds of mercy, are allowable exceptions to the rule. It's not a violation of the law when we are doing something on the Sabbath that, that saves, that preserves, that, that maintains life. The one requirement that must be met in order for the exception to apply is that David's men must have abstained from relations with women required during wartime. Remember, if indeed David was engaging in war, it was holy war. You, you know, if you've read through... Second Samuel, that Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, he's an example of a soldier who strictly observes this requirement. And so David assured the priest that his men had been following the rules during wartime. Uh, so the priest gave him the loaves of holy bread. And David, here again, I think we can see if we want to, to be apologists for the integrity of David, that he, he has no men. He's telling the truth in a technical sense. Perhaps we're stretching it there a little bit. But his men have kept themselves from women. 
Verse 7 gives us a chilling piece of information. It, it's just sort of, it's not, a, not inserted, I'm not saying it's inserted by somebody later, a scribe sticks it in there, but it's just kind of stuck right in there verses, between verses 6 and 8. Verse 7 says that one of the servants of Saul, Doeg the Edomite, was also there, detained before Yahweh. That probably means that he had gotten himself into a little bit of trouble ceremonially. And he was detained. He was, he was being held there, not quite as a prisoner, as it were, but, but he was in trouble, and he was, in a sense, paying the price for it. He was, he was doing penance, in a way. And this man was the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And even if you don't know what happens uh, in the next chapter, I guess I gave it away a little bit earlier, but you can guess, given the way that this verse interrupts the discourse between David and Ahimelech, you can guess that whatever happens is not good. That Doeg's presence here in verse 7, it is an unwelcome presence. Verse 8 returns to the conversation at hand. David now nonchalantly, and I think somewhat humorously perhaps, that's my read on it, he inquires as to whether the priest, the priest in the tabernacle, might happen to have a spear or, or maybe a sword that he could give to David. David, in his rush to hurry, uh, to, to carry out the, the king's commands, the king's mission, he went off and left his weapons. Might there be a weapon laying around somewhere here in the tabernacle in Nob? And Ahimelech tells David in verse 9, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David agrees in a slightly different way, in a play on the words. He agrees that there is none like it. There's only one sword like that sword. And then tells the priest to give it to him. And, verse, and in verse 10, he tell, we read there that David fled from there and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, David is still a fugitive. But he now has his daily bread, at least for a little while. He's got a weapon. And if Doeg and Ahimelech told the truth to Saul in chapter 22, verses 10 and 15, David, while he was there at Nob, David, while he was there with the priest, he asks Ahimelech to inquire of the Lord for him. And so we see that the refuge that David found at Nob, brief though it was, it came because he went there seeking the Lord as much as bread and a blade. And this takes us to the next point in the sermon, king of the country. Now, the city of Gath lay far to the west, southwest of Nob. And the, king, the city of Gath, it was a Philistine stronghold. Now David was apparently hoping that enough time had passed since his defeat of Goliath that no one would recognize him. He, he was a young man then, not necessarily the boy that a lot of our children's uh, story Bibles make him out to be, but he was a young man then, and, and a number of years, we don't know how many have passed, but a, a good number of years have passed, and perhaps David's hoping they won't recognize me. One commentator suggests that it was unlikely that David would have taken Goliath's sword with him to, to Gath, because its size and its heft would have made it instantly recognizable to any Philistine. And so perhaps David stashes it somewhere. He puts it uh, in a cave somewhere along the way. No matter, when David encounters the servants of Achish, they instantly recognize him and they recite the song that caused Saul to become jealous of him in the first place. 
Such was David's fame in battle. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens, ten thousands. And David realized very quickly that he could find no refuge in Gath. And as verse 12 says, he was very afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So finding no other way to save himself, verse 13 says, he changed his behavior before them and he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. It seems that based upon his military prowess, how his battle in, reputation in battle preceded him, not to mention his defeat of Goliath, the natural presumption of the Philistines was that he was the king of Israel, the king of the country. That's what they say in verse 11. After they recite, I'm sorry, just before they sing this song about David killing his ten thousands, they say, is this not David, the king of the land or the king of the country? And they're saying something about him that no one else has said about him at this point. No one else is telling David or referring to David as the king of the land. The sad reality for David was that he was a king, but without a country. He was a potentate without a people. He had been anointed king. He was the heir to the throne, but he hadn't yet been inaugurated. He had no power. David, very much like the one that he foreshadowed, has nowhere to lay his head. He is a king and is recognized as such only by the enemies of his people, not by those within his own country. It seems that he had gone to Achish hoping to forge some sort of alliance with him against Saul. David hopes the adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, would apply here. But it becomes very clear to David very quickly that Achish has no interest in partnering, partnering with him against Saul. He wants to have nothing to do with this man. David's attempt at feigning insanity, however, seems to work. In verses 14 and 15, Achish tells his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you, have you brought him to me? Do I, like, do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to be a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? It may be that the king's servants expected Achish to execute David on the spot. Here they are giving David over to the king, one of the greatest enemies of the Philistine people. They seemed to understand the threat that David posed if he was allowed to continue living. And they tried to convey that threat to Achish without telling the king what to do. They were in a precarious position. They can't just go say, you have to kill this man. But they do tell him, this is the man. He is the king of the land. He's the one who's going to come after you. But the fear of the madman trumped the threat that David posed. The king did not want a madman in his presence. And so David's ruse here works. Akish didn't see David as the threat that his servants did. After all, only an insane person would come, to, to come into the city of his enemies by himself looking for help. And so David was able to escape. Or as the introduction to Psalm 34 says, that Abimelech, another name for Akish the king, Abimelech drove him out. That was David's take on the matter. And so David has failed in his desperate attempt to gain an ally against Saul. He's failed in his attempt to find a refuge with the enemies of his people. And that brings us to the third point of the sermon today, mission to Moab. 
Chapter 22, verse 1 says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Once again, we have this word departed being used, as well as the word escaped. David still is fleeing. He's, he's a refugee. He's a fugitive. He continues to defy the inter- insurmountable odds that are arrayed against him, which quietly testifies to the faithfulness of the Lord in his good providence for David. Now, if the archaeologists are correct, Adullam was located about 13 miles west, southwest from Bethlehem which would put it within easy reach of David's family. And somehow they heard about David's presence there and went to to be with him. Perhaps David made an excursion over to Bethlehem. He traveled east, perhaps, uh, to let his family know he was still alive, to get provisions. But however it is that his family found out, they all left Bethlehem and went to him. Because if David was in danger of being killed by Saul and his men, so were the members of David's family. And so David's solitary life on the run had now come to an end. He had a family with him. But it came to an end in a bigger way than that. David, it's true, he had a fairly large family, which necessarily meant that getting provisions for this large family would make others aware of their presence in the caves at Adullam. But David's family wasn't the only addition. Verse 2 says, And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And this number will only increase over time. Now, who does this remind you of? Who who are the kinds of people mentioned, listed there in verse 2? Who does that kind of remind you of? Well, suddenly, it seems, David has a fighting force. And once again, he prefigures Jesus here, who also acquired a following for similar reasons. Out of this core group of men will will arise David's mighty men, these men of valor who David will take into battle after battle after battle, and they they will defy insurmountable, seemingly insurmountable odds. Defeating their enemies. David the fugitive, who sought refuge first at Nob and then at Gath, was now finding himself to be the place of refuge for others. First his family and then all of these others, what might be called the outcasts of society, they had sought him out. They wanted safety and security and protection. And they believed that they would find them with David. They would find those things with David. Many followed Jesus for the same reasons. You and I, we follow Jesus for the same reasons. Now David knew that the situation was untenable for his father and his mother. And so like his forefather Elimelech, he sought refuge for them in the land of Moab. Moab, you remember, was the birthplace of Ruth, David's great-grandmother. And verse 3 says that David went to the city of Mizpah and he spoke to the king of Moab, asking him to let David's father and mother stay there until David finds out what God will do for him. And after his parents were safely established in Moab, David returned to his men. And verse 4 says that his parents remained in Moab all the time that David was in the stronghold, which might be the cave at Adullam. It might be another unidentified location. It's hard to tell 
exactly where David went back to when he left his parents there. But, but consider this. We've, we've talked about, did David violate the ninth commandment in, in speaking these, what we might regard as lies, in, in, in going about a ruse, in deceiving but first the priest and then uh, the king of the Philistines? Here he seeks to honor the fifth commandment, doesn't he? To honor his father and his mother. Of course, every human is capable of obeying one commandment while violating another. We know that. But David seems to be concerned. He seems to be uh, careful about honoring his father and mother, caring for them, protecting them. And so he goes to the stronghold, but the stronghold, this arrangement there doesn't last. A heretofore unmentioned prophet, Gad, appears out of nowhere to tell David not to remain in the stronghold, but instead to go to Judah. Well, what do we know about Judah? Well, Judah is under Saul's control. Benjamin and Judah, these are two very closely linked tribes of, of Israel, these 12 tribes. When, when the northern tribes break away, it's just Judah and Benjamin. Judah is under Saul's control. This instruction from God through the prophet sends David right back into the red zone of danger. He's sending him back into the frying pan. And the last sentence of our passage this morning says, So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now, this would be in Judah since David was obeying the command of the prophet, but the exact location in Judah is unknown. And so David had his brothers with him. It was just his parents who he left in Moab. He had a people, these 400 men and perhaps some of their family, their children who were along with them, to which more seemed to be added daily. And he had a stronghold, a place of refuge and safety. But God is teaching him that David's true stronghold, his true place of refuge, is wherever God calls David to be. And so the question is, is David ever really truly a fugitive? Is he ever really truly a refugee? Is he ever really truly on the run if God is always there with him wherever he calls David to be? God is teaching David that whenever he is afraid, he simply needs to trust in the Lord who is with him, who is by his side. He doesn't need to go to a special place to meet with God. God is always there with him. God is the one who drove him out of the stronghold and into a more dangerous place, Judah. We find ourselves in a great deal of uncertainty right now. Do we have a new president or not? What will we do if the wrong man is elected? What's going to happen in the Senate? What will happen to us? I would suggest to you that there is a lot of fear among Christians. I'm not pointing fingers here. I, I've, I've studiously avoided much of social media <laughs> over the last few days, despite my early... I, I, tend to, I tend to looking at what people elsewhere are saying and less of what people in here are saying, and that's okay. But generally, Christians seem to be afraid right now. At the very least, we, we just don't know, and we're very anxious, and, and, and anxiety tends to boil over sometimes into anger, sometimes into stress, Sometimes it's a weeping. But when comparing the things that trouble us with those that troubled David, 
Ours are actually pretty small. David, who, the man who pretended to be a madman, had an actual madman hot on his heels trying to kill him. I don't think any of us can say that's the case for us. God is teaching David to trust in him. He is driving him out of his places of safety and security and showing him that wherever God draws him, wherever God drives him, wherever God takes him, that is where David is safe and secure. What can mortal man do to me? David writes about his experience. What can mortal man do to you, brothers and sisters? Again and again, God provided for David. Even when he sent the prophet Gad to tell David to go back to Judah. He provided for him. And that is because no matter where David was, God was his refuge. And the same is true for you and for me. For everyone who trusts in the name of the Lord, God is our refuge. And he's our refuge through his son, Jesus Christ, who sheltered us from his father's wrath. His father's just wrath that should have been poured out upon you and me because of our sins. Jesus Christ is our place of shelter, our place of refuge. Jesus Christ is our King. And because He is our King, brothers and sisters, no true and lasting harm can come to you and me. They can take our bodies. They can rip us to shreds. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But there are brothers and sisters, there are Christians in other places around the world who are facing that very prospect They're facing it right now. They have true, real reason to fear, and maybe some of them do, but for them too, Jesus Christ is their refuge because their bodies may be torn and ripped asunder. But they will depart and go to be with the Lord. Their souls will be with Him forever. And those bodies, which really are about the worst that man can do to us, those bodies will be reunited in glory with our souls. They will be perfected in resurrection. They will be glorified, perfect bodies, which are no longer subject to the effects of sin and the curse, no longer deteriorate, no longer break down, can no longer be killed. That is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is our refuge, He is our place of peace. He is our comfort. He is our joy. Everyone who is weary and heavy laden, who comes to Jesus Christ, will be given rest and refuge. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, we thank you that you are our stronghold. You're our place of Safety, you're our helm's deep, you are our keep, you are the one who protects us and preserves us. We know, Lord, that we have enemies, and our greatest enemy is not a human enemy. Our greatest enemy is not our political foe. Our greatest enemy is your enemy, the devil himself, who prowls about looking to rip us apart 
and devour us. But Lord, we know that we can trust in You. We know that You keep track of our tears, that You store them up in Your bottle, that You know our hardships and sorrows. Indeed, O Christ Jesus, God the Son, come in the flesh, You know that sorrow. In so many ways, You are just like Your earthly forefather, David, who had no place of safety to lay his head. And yet, Lord, we know that wherever you lay your head at night, you were safe. You were exactly where you were meant to be, and that your Heavenly Father looked after you, just as he looks after us. Lord, we pray that you would give us confidence and a sense of great surety, not because of how smart we are, how great we are, how wonderful we are, how good-looking we are, how much money we have in our bank accounts, that you would give us confidence in you and not in ourselves. That we would humbly bow before you who are our God and King, the one who is our place of refuge. We pray, Lord, that we would seek our refuge in you. We thank you for this time of refuge this morning. We thank you that we can be here in this sanctuary and be at peace. And we pray that this day would prove to be a sanctuary for us, a place of refuge as we rest in you. As we cease from our labors, but also cease from our worrying, our anxieties. As we remember, O Lord, that we rest in your hands and that our burdens have been placed on your strong shoulders. We are thankful to you for all of this and more. And we pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.